Hello and welcome to High Key Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today, as part of our very special Halloween Spectacular, I am joined by Aaron Deese. Aaron is, well, Aaron's a lot of things. He is an editor for Paranormality Magazine. He is a podcaster and a talk show host, but most relevant for our purposes today, Aaron is a paranormal writer and researcher. So, Aaron, how are you doing today? I'm great, Thomas. I appreciate you having me on. You're always a, a pleasure to talk to. So, thank you. Thank you for that introduction, too. I, that's a, that was a lot, of, a lot of stuff you said. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I had a, most of it saved from the newsletter I had you on. It, oh, yeah. For those of you who do not know, Aaron was on my Patreon-exclusive newsletter, The High Key Obsessive, a few weeks ago. And we talked about, amongst other things, but the, the focus of that was mostly how to responsibly create in the paranormal space and like some of the tricks of the trade to kind of get in with the lovable weirdos out there, but to avoid the kind of nefarious actors and to, yeah. you know, avoid wading into some of the murkier waters you can get into when you're into this sort of weird stuff we're into. That was a fun conversation, thinking back on that. Yeah. It was. And the my Patreon seemed to enjoy it. Got some nice feedback from that. So thank you once again. Yeah, and thank you. Lovely people out there, if you want to check that out, hop on the Patreon, and maybe if enough of you ask nicely, I'll drop it to <laughs> the mainstream. That'd be proud. Uh, I am potting moderately under duress today. Got a little cold, mostly be on mute. <laughs> to avoid coughing and stuff. But today, Aaron, we have yes. a very important task ahead of us. Yes. We have to, we have, we don't have to, we want to talk about something very exciting. You have a new book coming out. I do. In the spring. I do. So why don't you go ahead and tell the people out there where they can follow you, you know, plug your social media accounts, and then give us like a little teaser, a little hint about the book, and then we'll get into peeling back the layers. Cool. Cool, cool. Well, yeah, my name's Aaron. I am most active on Instagram under at hey underscore strangeness. We actually have a website, heystrangeness.com. It exists now. There's not much there, but it has links to <laughs> some of our social channels and to our podcast. You can find our podcast on Spotify and Apple under Hey Strangeness. We have not made an episode in seven months, so but it's there. <laughs> and then I do have a book coming out in the spring called The Texas Dogman Triangle. And it is a deep dive into werewolf and or dogman and or, you know, upright canid signings, sightings, goodness, in the state of Texas. And it's the older accounts go back a little more than 100 years. We have some some folkloric tales that have been around for a long time, all the way up to the modern day where we have witnesses who have never actually told their stories before. So that's that's a general summary. There's more to it and there's there's a bunch of fun stuff in there, but that's that's the summary, you know. So, Dogman is a very interesting topic in the paranormal realm. 
mm-hmm. I feel like it has gotten a lot of steam in recent years in terms of sightings increasing and a lot of coverage. But what's funny is when we did our Patreon interview, I didn't know that you were that you had the book coming out yet. And I hadn't listened to the Dogman episode of your podcast yet. And so I was just like, you know, Dogman is one of the ones I just, I can't get behind. I'm not yeah. necessarily a believer of. And so then when you asked me to be part of your like upcoming press tour for this book, I was like, that's funny. And you know, it's funny you say that because that's a common response I get from people like, oh, werewolves, that's nonsense. Werewolves don't exist. And that was where I really started with this phenomenon. I think I first ran across it in one of Nick Redfern's books or one of Linda Godfrey's books. Of course, Linda Godfrey is the <clears throat> seminal writer on this topic. And I'm, I'm still, even then I was like, no, nah, but there's not. Werewolves aren't a thing. And then the more I read and the more stories I ran across, I was like, okay, but then what are all these people seeing? <laughs> what are all these people reporting? And I still don't know the answer to that. But Can you give the people sort of a basic overview of what Dogman is? Because I know you've said werewolf. That's just so that's easier to identify it that way. But it's not like mm-hmm. the movie or fairy tale werewolf where the tra- only tra- it's a human transforming into a wolf at night, right? It's not yeah. most of what people are seeing. No, definitely not. And I use the term werewolf and dogman interchangeably simply so I don't say the exact same word over and over and over and over again. When I completed the draft of the book. The first time the word dogman appeared over 170 times. I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta do something here. But no, we're not talking about transforming under a full moon. You got bit and now you're cursed or you have the werewolf disease or whatever. That's, that's not a thing in traditional werewolf lore. That's not a thing. Shapeshifting is there. Definitely. There's definitely some like cannibalism in some of the lore and that, that might be how some people gain the ability to become quote unquote werewolves, whatever. We could deep dive on that at your leisure, but. Uh, no, we're not talking about Hollywood werewolves. What we're talking about are people who are describing uh, upright standing humanoid figures, very often mentioning pointed ears, yellow eyes, very often glowing eyes and bipedal locomotion. They walk on two legs, whether they start on four and go up to two or whether they appear on two seems to vary from report to report. But all of that to say, no, we're not talking about Lon Chaney, <laughs> underworld, you know, style werewolves. <laughs> so basically, from my familiarity with this, there's like two, at least two types. But two main types are there's like some seem to be literally just upright walking dogs or wolf type things, but bigger, but mm-hmm. like with canine, canine type legs, right? But then some are almost Bigfoot like with a dog head. Yeah, and there's some of the weirder paranormal stuff that I feel would be more like Ruderu territory, maybe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and that that's another weird thing with this phenomenon. So it's like more than Bigfoot, Dogman seems to have some of the like weirder paranormal type things enter the conversation where it's like people report telepathic conversations with these things. There seems to be like weird levels of intelligence or like evil inherent in a lot of these stories. And it's just like, so while I... Because, you know, I'm not to the level where people are telling me firsthand encounters or anything. I haven't had... Like, the reason I enjoy these stories, despite not being necessarily a believer in Dogman, is because there's, like, there's a lot of interesting parts of them. And then that weird, evil, scary factor. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the common things that we looked at in the book. And the book is... I probably should have mentioned this sooner. Sorry, I get... I go on tangents. The no, book yeah, is also being... Too. 
No. <laughs> well, like, oh my God, how am I not mentioned this yet? But the book is being published by Small Town Monsters Publishing and it's being re- in it's being released in conjunction with a film on the same topic called The Dogman Triangle, Werewolves in the Lone Star State. And we wrapped up filming on that about a week and a half ago. So there's actually going to be a film and a book. There'll be quite a bit of crossover between the two. The book inspired the film project but then while going on the film project we found additional information and i met additional witnesses and got more information on some stories that were already in there so you know it's gonna there's gonna be multiple parts to it to try to pick it apart and make this more digestible but yeah there is a lot to it to go back to what you said i'm sorry this the quote-unquote spiritual or supernatural aspects the the fear response that witnesses exhibit you know, there's something there that seems to go kind of against the grain of your atypical Bigfoot encounters where people will describe feeling afraid, but you don't often get these overwhelming descriptions of terror that a lot of these dogman witnesses seem to have. Yeah. And a lot of the stories, they like, they radiate pure evil. And there's another weird thing with, and I, we touched on this in the interview too, where there's this sort of, um, it seems like especially in the South, but probably all over the place. There's this thing where there's commu- small communities that are relatively isolated and pretty much the same as they were 100 years ago. And in these places, you get alleged stories where people are just like, they know Bigfoot is out there, but it's no big deal because they're used to it. Or they, in, in this case, like people just know that Dogman's out there, but you know they just know don't go into the swamp at night, don't go into the woods at night. Yeah, you do see that. Mm-hmm. And and we ran into some areas during the filming, you know, of the of the documentary where we met people who just said, "Hey, oh yeah, we know they're out there. We call them the monsters. They're the monsters in the woods. Nobody nobody messes with them. They don't mess with us, but we know they're there." You know, and it's it's not it's not like in a movie, you know, when you go to a small town and an old man's like, "Oh, so you you also seen the monster?" No, it's just like, "Oh yeah, they're there. Yeah, we know them." Don't know why you guys are interested in them, but yeah, we know they're there. Just a just a part of everyday life, and that's weird. It is. It, it defies logic. Really, it doesn't make a lot of sense because you you watch werewolf movies and and horror movies or fiction in general, and you get this idea of okay, yeah, this is a fictional narrative. Things like this don't happen, and then you go and you meet some people, and and something like that does kind of happen. It, it challenges your perspective. Yeah. So what was the driving force behind this? Like, why did you decide that you had to write this book? It started with one of the first eyewitness reports I got was from a friend, somebody who also kind of makes an appearance in the movie. And uh, his, his story was so convincing because I know this guy so well. He's just not the kind of person that goes around making things up, you know parent business professional military veteran a bunch of a bunch of stuff like just good qualifiers and and the story was so consistent with what i had already read at that point about the beast of bray road and the michigan dogman you know a few other well-known upright canid encounters i was like well this is really similar so then i started looking in the north american dogman research project has some sightings in the same area and linda godfrey had talked about some sightings pretty close in a couple of her books and then websites like texas cryptid hunter and true horror stories of texas both of which were indispensable during the research phase michael jody john they run those three websites they're awesome there's this just concentration of activity or of people perceiving activity in the central texas area and i did some searching and some talking to people and like well 
it doesn't look like anybody else has really comprehensively asked this question. What, what's going on with these upright Canaan sightings in Texas? Why are they concentrated in this, you know, quote unquote, triangle area? And that just kind of went from there. Small town monsters reached out and they're like, hey, do you want to do a book with our new publishing arm? And I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Here's this idea I have. They liked it. And then we went from there. Here we are. So your friend, is he a fan of the paranormal or uh, a believer? What's his vibe? Well, one of those people that will watch ghost documentaries from time to time will tell you a strange story if you're interested in it, but not like a, a paranormal enthusiast had no idea that up you know upright dog sightings were a thing okay until we had this conversation yeah and it came up so organically like i was like yeah i just finished this really cool book on bigfoot i don't remember which one it was and he goes you know i saw someone so i don't think it was a bigfoot sighting and then he describes it and two months prior i had just finished reading the beast of bray road so you know my jaw is like a gape and i was just like tell me more and it yeah it sort of went from there that's interesting that's like i mean that's one of the things that seems to be maybe driving some of the increase in sightings is that people weren't really aware that dog man was a thing mm -hmm. and like now i feel like there's a little bit if you're close with someone they'll be like oh yeah bigfoot sighting or whatever but like dog man's a whole it's like it's a whole nother thing because it's insane yeah it sounds ridiculous like my, the thing I've been saying to people in conversation for the last year while I've been working on this project is, well, werewolves are real. Did you know, did you know werewolves are real? And obviously nobody believes that, but it starts a conversation, <laughs> but it's, it comes so far out of left field. And I talked to a lot of people for the book, Jody Cook, I mentioned him earlier, Lyle Blackburn, Nick Redfern, Ken Gerhard were all contributors at some capacity, as well as uh, Jeremiah Byron, Justin and Joe of Hellbent Holler, Kenzie Gleason, Rod Nichols, a lot of people. I'm going to forget to name somebody, so apologies to whoever that is, but I talked to a lot of people and they all kind of said the same thing that like, or uh, at least expressed a similar sentiment that like, yeah, this is a weird, this is a weird concept. It really wasn't getting attention until about 10 years ago. Um, why is that? We're not sure yet. I think it's because there, for a, a long time, I think the paranormal community was sort of segmented and like you were in your bops and that was it. Yeah. And so I think with some of the, uh, the recent, like Joshua Touchin and uh, Timothy Renner's books, where they delve into the weird Bigfoot sightings, I've totally blamed him what those are called. Where the footprints end? Yes. Yes. So like some of that stuff. And I feel like there's now more of, a willingness to look into, hey, maybe I think there's more of a willingness to entertain less than scientific answers to some of these explanations, I guess, some of these origins, because like in your episode talking about Dogman, you discussed at that time you thought it was a flesh and blood creature, right? That's very much the theory that I was running with at the time. Yeah. And I, I, I do still believe some of these sightings fall very squarely into that category. Mm -hmm. if, if for no other reason that they then if for no other reason than that, they seem to take place in areas with similar topography, water sources, game, like, you know, deer, rabbit, things like that. Wide open spaces where there aren't a lot of people around. Very often either national parks or privately owned ranch land. And when you think about an animal trying to, to avoid being seen, that's the ideal environment. You know, very few people, lots of food, lots of water, lots of coverage. But again, some of these encounters runs so parallel to the line of the supernatural or the paranormal, you know, pick your, pick your term. They, they don't all fit. So, so I, I feel like 
my gut says, okay, well, maybe there's more than one thing going on here. But to answer your question, yes, a, a year ago, I was very much like, oh, it's just a big wolf. Yeah. Now, I don't, I don't know, bro. And I think because a lot of the time, the like mainstream-ish paranormal researchers, I feel like they strive to be scientific. And mm-hmm. to own, like, because the, uh, there's a need to establish legitimacy, I guess. They don't want to delve into any of the supernatural elements. Yeah. And so Dogman, yeah. which doesn't really have a, a parallel evolutionary wise, you know what I mean? Like there's no other upright walking canine, like evidence for that in the tree. Really. Yeah. So it's hard. And it doesn't to make behind. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Based on what we know about bipedal locomotion and canines in general, it doesn't make sense. Like. Some people will say like, oh, maybe these things are surviving dire wolves. Well, dire wolves were short. They were big animals, but they had short legs and they were not built to stand up, you know, on two legs and walk. They just weren't. So there's a lot of scientific arguments against this thing, even though, like you said, we do try to approach it scientifically, at least to some degree. I'm, I try and I'm not a scientist. I'm not a biologist or a zoologist or any of that stuff. You know, I, I know a lot of people in veterinary medicine and I watch a lot of the documentaries and I read a lot of books. So, you know, whatever that equips me for, fine. That's what I've got. But what we do know is that scientifically upright dogs don't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Right. So here's a question for you. While working on this book, what are some of the things that you've learned about this? Book? Again, going back to the supernatural aspect, I think that's, I think that's something I did not I just didn't fully appreciate it at the beginning. And then also, like we touched on earlier, that these things are very much just a part of life for some people. They live, as far as they're aware, alongside of them. Also, that it's something that goes back way, way further than I think people fully appreciate. Like, you know, we think of of the 40s, the 50s as kind of being when the werewolf picked up steam in pop culture because... The Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr. came out in 1941. So that's a really good point to trace its origin to. But Sabine Baring Gould wrote The Book of Werewolves in 1865. And that's a collection of folklore and tales from mostly Europe, but all over the world about, you know, the Norse berserkers and other, you know, form changing entities throughout history. So like people have been researching this, I feel kind of in the way I have for over a hundred years. <laughs> and that, that blew my mind. There's a quote really early in the book and I'm probably going to get it wrong, but Gould says, while I've yet to obtain a specimen of the animal, I've seen its traces in all directions. Um, and I really think that's relevant to the question, you know, like why is this everywhere? So, so that was kind of a roundabout answer, but no, I think that was good. That worked for me. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> I'll chase my tail on this shit. Like, <laughs> so before writing this book, were you a believer in Dogman? Or before, I guess, your friend came to you with this story? I was getting, I was starting to be. Because if you want to, if you want a good metric for believability and, you know, Dogman werewolf encounters, look at the Beast of Bray Road, look at Linda Godfrey's work. You know, I'll probably reference her several times because this project would not have happened without, without her work, just wouldn't have. So I was kind of getting to that point. I'm like, okay, well then why, if this is total nonsense, why is there so much being written about it? Why are so many people reporting it? And then pretty much once I had finished production of the podcast episode, also called the Texas Dogman Triangle, but that time it was very small. It was a very small triangle. I was kind of like right there, like, yeah, I really think there's something to this. Something's really going on here. So almost, and then almost definitely right away. Yeah. (laughs) Hard not to be. And at this point, 
you've already touched on this, but you believe at least a portion of the sightings seem to be flesh and blood creatures of some sort. I do. Yeah. And you mentioned Bigfoot sightings earlier. The, the Sasquatch connection or parallel is made all the time. Pretty much everybody I interviewed for this book mentioned Sasquatch at some point, whether they were another researcher, an expert or a witness, that comparison is inevitable because some of these stories do seem like quote unquote aggressive Sasquatch encounters where it have the face of a dog. So that's the category they kind of fall into. And we do have instances where there are footprints. We have claw marks, you know, we, we see bodies of animals being left behind. But then again, you get other stories that have things like you described telepathic communication or this ridiculous, overwhelming sense of fear. Some stories where there a mist appears at about mm-hmm. the same time as the animal. That's a really weird one. I remember um, um, when, so I was re-listening to several podcasts about various Dogman things to prepare for this. And I listened to an interview Seth Breedlove did on in Spanish Perspectives talking about making the Beast of Bray Road, mm. the documentary, which might have a different title. It's So this trips me up a lot, and I had to make sure I had this down when we were filming Dogman Triangle, but it's it's the Beast of Bray Road is the book, and that's what everybody refers to the monster as. The, the film is the Bray Road Beast. So <laughs> making the Bray Road Beast, and there's that sequence with the fog that sets in, and then... The deer is like eaten at the end of it. And it's very weird. Like, and that's just the thing you hear this in other phenomena as well, but like that weird fog or mist setting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's a, it's an odd thing in paranormal lore where you get fog or mist. And the, some of these stories, not just in Texas, but going out further, you know, the, the mist seems to show up when the dog man or when the werewolf stands up on its two legs. And in some of these cases, you get reports of like bones popping, like you're, you're cracking your knuckles, you know, oh, that's gross. So like it stands yeah. up, like, crack, 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 crack. <laughs> yeah. So I get like one of the theories being that like, well, maybe they don't stand up on two legs very often. And it's like when you, you know, stretch your back, you know, for the first time in a while and your back pops. So I'm like, okay, but that, that doesn't make sense either. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that doesn't make sense either. If you think about the reasons for an animal to stand up on two legs, it's probably some kind of a survival trait, you know? It yeah, it'd be like a furious response or something. Yeah, it's an intimidation fact, tactic. It's trying to make itself look bigger. Or it, one theory is that, oh, they like to look over tall brush and corn stalks and stuff like that. I'm like, all right, well, then why? Are, what's with the knuckle cracking? Because if this is a learned behavior that they have adapted for survival, presumably they're not doing it once or twice a year. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, my cats run constantly. <laughs> they don't just run sometimes. So that that brings me to a question I have, and one of my issues with this: Are we sure people aren't just like just afraid and seeing bears sometimes? At least sometimes, I'm sure that's what. Oh, it, they certainly are. But like, yeah, some of these are definitely misidentification. Because, yeah, I mean that's just like, like bears sometimes stand up when they're stared or startled like that, and then they like they like to see things, you know. So like, just, yes, that descriptor was like, you know, <laughs> that's bears. <laughs> And yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Some of these stories do. People mention bear-like attributes. There are a couple There are a couple legends in Texas, the Beast of Bear Creek and the Bear King of Marble Falls that kind of straddle the line, you know, between being bear-like and wolf-like. But yeah, absolutely. Misidentification is a huge thing. If you ever seen a moose, they are enormous. They're yeah. tr- tremendous creatures. So a moose running across the road at night that you only glimpse for a second when you're tired from driving all day. You could perceive that as a two-legged canine. Absolutely. Bears with mange are another pretty popular Very scary. 
Yeah. If, if Google bears with mange and you're going to be like, oh my God, it's a werewolf. It's a horrifying prospect. And then of course you have large dogs like mm-hmm. Irish wolfhounds and German shepherd mixes and, and other big breeds that have glimpsed just for a moment, you know, at a time when you were afraid and maybe your visibility wasn't great, you might've thought, oh goodness, I saw a werewolf. The problem with that being a blanket explanation, specifically in Texas, is we don't have a lot of bears here. We have some. That is that is like a, I always forget that because it, it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, mm-hmm. But like, I, I do always forget that like at least a half of the state of Texas is like does not have bears, right? No. Yeah. There, I mean, there's plenty of wooded areas that do. There's some known populations up north and down south and they sporadically will make appearances in places, but they're not, it, it's not like it is. I don't know, pick a northern state where yeah, people are always that's why. posting pictures of bears on their Instagrams. It's not like that. Yeah, um, that's bear, exactly why I, I always forget that because I, I live in New York. We have we have a good amount of bears. <laughs> There's one right outside. But moose also doesn't work here. It's too hot. Moose don't do well in temperatures above, I want to say, 70 some degrees. And, and we average between the 80s, 90s. And I mean, it's been in the hundreds this summer. It's been hot. Moose can't live here. So that narrows down two likely explanations that might be good write-offs in other states, more northern areas where we see a lot of dogman activity. Okay, well, coyotes. We have coyotes out here. Coyotes are eight feet tall. <laughs> yeah, coyotes are not eight feet tall. And one one idea I played They're with. not that scary. I mean, like, I have a I have nightmares about coyotes when I was a kid, so I have, like, a little bit of... And they scream. Their screams are scary. But, like, yeah, when you see a coyote, it looks like a small dog, really. Yeah, they look like my parents get them on their property all the time. They catch them on their game cameras because they live kind of out in the hills all the time. They just come up, they chill, they steal a few chickens. But what they don't do is stand on two legs. They don't leave, you know, witnesses terrified and traumatized. And a lot of these sightings also, they're happening either during the day or with some daylight still, you know, and they're being reported by people who are from the hill country, like. The Texas Hill Country is it is basically forest, desert, plains, swamp, all wrapped into one. And these people know animals. They know what bears look like. They know what coyotes look like. They know what wildcats look like. We get those too. There's, we do. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. We get mountain lions. We do get those sometimes. You know, so there's a lot of things that these these entities could be if you want to write it off as something mundane um, and be as skeptical as you like. But these people know what those animals look like. Are this many Texas natives who who are literally born with a gun in their hands, you know, <laughs> who were born hunting and fishing and spending time outdoors and, and managing cattle? Are this many of them misidentifying coyotes? No, dude, I can't. I can't buy that. I can't. Were you able to talk to any like forestry or park officials or like, you know, park rangers, anything like that? Because I feel like with a lot of these and it doesn't really matter what type of phenomena we're getting into but there's always tons of stories of people claiming to be park rangers or claiming they're friends of park ranger or whatever and so we get a lot of hearsay evidence coming from supposed like outdoor officials but were you, were, were you able to nail down anything concrete on that front sadly no and we did try i say we because heather Mosier, after i gave her the book she really picked up the research i had done and really ran with it and found a bunch of other people so that's why i keep saying we because i've had so much i've had so much help with this but heather and i both reached out to park officials and didn't get a whole lot in response there is an area in it's it's spelled peter Nales. the people are in, in austin pronounce it perdernales i don't know why but there's a there's a 
area in Peter Nell's Falls a State Park called Wolf Mountain. And we're not supposed to have wolves here either. We used to a long time ago, but we don't have proper wolves in most of Texas. So um, we contacted the park and we're like, hey, why is this called Wolf Mountain? Because it's also in an area around a few of the sightings in the book. And they basically said, we don't know. <laughs> most most likely because we, yeah, most likely because we used to have wolves, but we don't know. That's, that kind of checks out. To be fair, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. So there, there were a couple other entities and organizations I reached out to, but they they were the only like parks department that responded, unfortunately. Okay, I mean that makes sense. <laughs> that is another part of the Dogman thing, and I think I've only heard this from a researcher. I will not disclose because I do not agree with some of his beliefs. So, but he was of the opinion that these were like government experimentations and like maybe satanic in origin some of that weird stuff and so, have you come across any of that sort of conspiracy conspiracy origins of the dog man one of the one of the theories going back to the spectral supernatural side is that these things might be demonic in nature we used that term i think i'm gonna go on a side tangent for a second i think we use that a term too loosely in the paranormal community because we don't know we don't know what demons are. We have biblical descriptions and we have modern accounts and we have stuff. We don't know exactly what that is. So to put something in a box and say, oh, well, this is definitely a demon. You don't even know the shape of the box. But anyway, um, that is one of the theories is that these are unfriendly or malevolent spiritual beings and that that's why people are so afraid of them, you know, when they encounter them. And it would also account for some of the stranger ones where they seem to communicate telepathically or their eyes are glowing independent of any other light source. You know, if we introduce a spiritual element, suddenly these things can, we don't have to explain them. You know what I mean? Yes. What was the rest of your question? I'm sorry. Oh, oh, government stuff. I've heard the, the hybrid theory that they're government engineered super soldiers. I've heard anecdotes of them, you know, getting out of spaceships and having laser guns before. I, I've heard Plenty of interesting stories, but I mm -hmm. did not encounter that in my research in the Texas area. Okay. That does not seem to be a factor. I could be wrong. Texas is a huge place. And these, these encounters seem to run the gamut from, like we said, maybe just a dog to very strange and supernatural. So maybe there's some reports, legitimate reports in the Texas area that concern that stuff, but I haven't run across them yet. Yeah. Yeah. And the, to circle back to our misidentification conversation, some of the stories Obviously, like with the supernatural-ish elements or like some of the other ones, it's like, so it's my same theory with the Bigfoot thing and a lot of these other paranormal things we hear about is that either the people, is, like the person telling the story is lying or they're not. And like, that seems obvious, but like, no, but I, I can't like, there's no reason that. to lie, really, but there's no, no way like they misidentified this or there's some other explanation. Either they saw the thing they're claiming to see or they're a liar. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think most of the time that's accurate. You also have to account for perception when people are again, tired, they're under duress when they're, when they're experiencing fear, you know, we might perceive a threat to be greater than it is. So if you're afraid of dogs and you see one at night when you're really tired, you might perceive a German shepherd as being eight feet tall for that half a second. I can account for that, at yeah. least in some cases. Like, sure, let's allow for that. But you can't paint them all with that brush, especially when I put together a map that'll be in the book of the actual, you know, sightings in the Triangle area. And looking at that map, I'm like, no, this doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work. 
<laughs> at a certain point, it makes more sense that something inexplicable is happening than it is that a bunch of people saw a weird dog. In my opinion. Did you run into any of the uh, supposed black dog thing? Are you familiar oh, with like, that? With like, like the, hell, the hell hounds? No, no, no. Like, supposedly police around the country have a code for upright canines and it's black dog sightings. That has also been mentioned to me by some of the people I've talked to. I was not able to find a law enforcement, a current law enforcement person to corroborate that. The person that presented that theory to me does have a law enforcement background and there's someone I consider very reputable. So, but I wasn't able to find any current law enforcement folks. And we do have a few in our extended family that, that were willing to admit they were familiar with that term. <laughs> That's too bad. But, you know, I just want to know. <laughs> No, that's one that I've asked after too. When we were doing research for the podcast episode on the Dogman Triangle a year ago, I reached out to this with people I just mentioned, extended family who have law enforcement background. And they're like, no, we get calls for, we would get calls for big dogs sometimes, but I'm not familiar with that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, thank you. Maybe it's a new thing. I don't know. <laughs> Are there any stories that you can share? Maybe some that weren't in the book, but you found compelling or uh, like any of these, you know, it's a, it's a Halloween episode. Any stories yeah. you can tell us? Well, everything I, everything I encountered that I could include is in the book. The only things that I wasn't able to include in detail are some anecdotal ones that were mentioned online, either as comments or there, there's a podcast that talks about some pretty detailed sightings. I could not, I could not, despite my efforts get a hold of the host of that podcast. I couldn't get a hold of the guest and both Heather Mosher and I tried. Um, you know, if you know Heather, you know, she's a, she's a unstoppable researcher. She's a force to be reckoned with. So if Heather couldn't get a hold of the guy, I don't know. I don't know. He's a ghost. What was that show? Dogman Encounters Radio, Vic Cundiff. So if anybody has a line to Vic Cundiff, I would really like to talk to him. <laughs> is he, is he, he's the only host of that? I believe so. I haven't listened to a ton of episodes, but the ones I'd listened to, he was him interviewing somebody. That's yeah. What, yeah. I, but yeah, that's, that's really the only one I couldn't, couldn't get a hold of. The, the, probably the most scariest or, or most chilling story I got was a sequence of encounters from a gentleman named John. And he, I, I was put in touch with him by Jody Cook of the North American Dogman Research Project. And he manages a property of about a hundred acres in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Didn't want his exact location, last name or town to be shared, which I totally understand. DFW, the Dallas-Fort Worth area is enormous. It's enormous. So telling you someone's their DFW is basically just telling you someone's in Texas. But he's encountered these things regularly on his property since November of last year. And he started to notice that the deer, he usually get a lot of deer on his property. Um, they just weren't showing up. He just really wasn't seeing them. And then same with wild boars. He wasn't seeing those or wild pigs. He said he would usually see, how did he describe it? Sounders of 30 to 40. And recently he's only seeing a few here and there. And long story short, he's encountered these creatures that he describes as upright walking dogs. Um, somewhat German shepherdish, pointed ears, big teeth, big claws, and very aggressive. He's taken multiple shots at them. And he's confident that he made contact. He's another guy with a law enforcement military background. And these these Texas Hill Country folks, they know their way around the firearm. Like, it's just, everybody has guns out here. And <laughs> I mean, from my experience, which is mostly listening to a, like podcasters from Texas and reading um, like Mike Hayes stuff, is that 
Texas hunters because it's so bred into them. There are, you know, obviously like the red nets who are just shooting anything that moves. But for the most part, there's this culture of like responsible hunting. And like, yes. you don't shoot at something unless you know what it is. And like, you know, you practice, you train. It's not just something anyone, like everyone does it, but not anyone can do it type of thing. Yes. Yes. And John, John said something similar when I was talking with him. You know, he doesn't just go out on his property and shoot everything that moves. His exact words were anything that poses a threat to my family or my cattle, I shoot. And we have coyotes out here. We have wild dogs. We have things that do pose a threat. So he didn't immediately open fire on it, but it charged at him. <laughs> he's, he said he's had a couple instances where it charged at him for a number of meters away and he'll put five, six, seven rounds into it and it, it doesn't stop moving. He's able to kind of drive them off based on his descriptions, but he, he's yet to put one down. And mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that blows my mind. That's, that's another thing that doesn't make sense. And you hear that quite often with this and a little bit with Bigfoot. I feel like you hear this more with Dogman probably because people are afraid of it more than they are mm-hmm. with Bigfoot. And Bigfoot has that too human to shoot thing that you sometimes come across. Yeah. But like in an interview, Linda Godfrey was touching on that too, because there is the inclination to want to believe this is a flesh and blood creature, but like people shoot it and yeah, it's big and it's hulking, but like you can take, you can kill big and hulking things. Like people kill grizzly bear, unfortunately, mm-hmm. like people kill elephants and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It is possible. And this guy, I think he said he was using five, Point five six ammunition or something like that. It's I looked it up. It's the standard. I looked it up. It's the standard ammunition that NATO militaries use. So it's not. That's a you know, like. That's that's what he told me. I don't know about guns. <laughs> no, no, I know, but like, but the, yeah. He, I mean, I, like, yeah, it makes sense, I guess. But it's yeah, you know, this is my northern sensibility. Like, it makes you yeah like you guys you guys know how gun guns work like he, he, they 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 kill things and to hear this guy describe putting seven rounds of five point five six into one of them and then it still gets up and runs away is just absurd to me like it do, it doesn't make any sense when I was interviewing him I even thought like nobody's gonna believe this I can't put this in the book but it's not the only time we have right. a story of one of these things being shot. That was, actually, I was going to ask you if you came across that and because it is weirdly pre- prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. There's a story out of Vider, Texas, the Vider werewolf, which has been covered by Lyle Blackburn, Ken Gerhard, a few other guys before. Um, also, they were extremely helpful with this research stuff. But where a guy shot one with a double barrel 12 gauge at point blank range, you know, maybe 10 feet away and it kept coming. There's a story out of, I believe it's, is it Conroe County? Where someone takes a shot at one through a scope, he's positive he made impact. You know, the thing kept walking. That's just in Texas. If you blow out the lens on dogman stuff, it's all over the country where you get these anecdotes of them being shot and walking. Very interesting. And Shannon LeGrow of End of the Fray, I also don't know how I didn't mention this sooner. She's the, the co-investigator, co-host of the documentary with me. And having her perspective was just invaluable because I've been so deeply buried in this thing for over a year, you know, but she came at it with a really, really fresh perspective. So she was able to ask witnesses questions that I probably wouldn't have thought of. <laughs> so I she, um, uh, she's done witness interviews and witness, like she's released books with collections of witness stories. Uh-huh. So that's, uh-huh. that's sort of her wheelhouse for sure. And yeah. She is probably more of a, a wider net of nationwide stuff to draw on too, to look at parallels and things that, you know, because you're coming at this deep diving for like a year, but like she's the wide net for however long. 
Yeah. And she's a veteran dude. Like mm-hmm. she, she's been doing this stuff for a long time and she knows she just, she thinks that she knows how to think about this stuff and having her along is super invaluable. Yeah. I forgot where I was going with that, but that's important. <laughs> okay. So I just want to ask you one more thing about this and then I want to move into the documentary actually. Mm-hmm. Cool. So Sorry. where can people go to learn more about this phenomenon? North American Dogman Research Project website has a lot of good encounters of Texas Cryptid Hunter and True Horror Stories of Texas. Both have stories that are included in the book and helped add on during the research process. If you want to just know more about the Dogman phenomena, Linda Godfrey's works are indispensable. You know, obviously the Small Town Monsters documentaries, Bray Road Beast, Skinwalker, Howl of the Rougarou. And American werewolves cover a pretty good spectrum of this phenomena. I don't want to say we're breaking new ground with the Texas Dogman Triangle because that sounds pretentious, but I do think we're approaching this in a in a way that's somewhat fresh and somewhat unique. So all of those things, though, <laughs> check out all of those things. Very fresh for you still. So I I wanted to talk about the documentary now, yeah. and I don't want to get you in trouble. I don't want you to reveal too much or say yeah. that you can't. I think I know what I can say what I can. It's it's cool. But so like you mentioned already, your book is being published by the new arm of Small Town Monsters, Small Town Monsters Publishing. Mm-hmm. And was it originally like as soon as the book was pitched and, you know, agreed upon and all that, was it always going to be a documentary or was that like they got it, they read it, they were like, this is fire. There's something here. It kind of fits our MO. Well, what if we develop a documentary? It, kind of a second one. Yeah. I, I would say it was about two months in of me regularly talking with Heather and sending her notes and because Heather's Heather's my editor for all intents and purposes, sending her information and her sending stuff back and just kind of talking about this. She's like, hey, Seth wants to do, you know, some kind of a, an, a concentrated area in the Southwest next year. What what do you think about a Texas Dogman Triangle movie? And I was just immediately ecstatic, like, you know, you called a stormtrooper cosplayer and invited them to Skywalker Ranch. That's basically what it was like for me. So, <laughs> yeah, it, kind of, it came pretty shortly after the book, but originally it wasn't meant to be a two-part project. Yeah. I remember when it was announced or you talked about it, I, I remember thinking how exciting that was because you have uh, talked about how big of a fan you are of their works and like Seth and all them. Yeah. Yeah. Their, their work has been important to me personally. And then also just as a, a member of this community, I think they're putting out some of the best content out there and I'll find anybody who doesn't agree with me. I don't care. And now professionally uh, too. Yeah. <laughs> and now like professionally, that's, that's no, those are my people. No, but yeah, like it, it, it was so surreal. It was so bizarre. Cause I, th- I thought like, oh, it'd be cool to meet these guys at a convention one of these days and say hi. And then I got to hang out with them for a week and make a movie like super bizarre and then they end up being these really cool nice people you know like it was a very relaxed environment when we weren't actively working on something i had no clue what i was doing and they were super chill and nice and gave me plenty of advice and you know just a cool experience all around meet your heroes kids so for the uh, actual documentary though what what was sort of the process like did you go talk to i don't yeah just what was the process yeah, it's it's so like of making the documentary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I met with them near the airport up in Dallas and we had our first day of interviews, which started with Lyle Blackburn and Nick Redfern. 
that set the tone for me for the rest of the week. <laughs> and Kenzie Gleason also hung out with us that night too. So just seeing all these people that I'm, I'm a fan of or a friend of all in the same place was super cool. But then it was just kind of a, a sequence of traveling from one Airbnb to the next, staying for a couple of days, interviewing a few witnesses, going to a few locations that are either mentioned in the book or the same topography as that's in the, in the book. And then going to another location and starting it over again. You know, there was, there was not a script. Seth didn't feed us lines or, oh, I want you to say this now. It was just, okay, talk to us about this part of the book. This is what we're going to focus on right now. And then he just let me go. Just let me do my thing. And I would stop a lot. Does that sound okay? Do I sound stupid? It's like, just, just say it how you would normally say it. So like working with Seth as a director and the whole production team was a super positive experience, you know, very much not all high pressure. Like I was afraid it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I took a documentary class. Woo. Um, Ooh, cool. I but, that. That's cool. So that is important how Seth was like, just be yourself and wasn't trying to manufacture anything mm. because, you know, that's one of the, one of the threats to a documentarian, like to try to manufacture something that isn't there because you thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I Seth has a really organic and, and good i can't think of an adjective right now really good way of doing that and i felt that way before you know i actually got to work with him i got that sense just from watching his films but seeing it from the other side was very it was cool it was very validating like wow like this this really is happening organically in real time these are real conversations we're having with witnesses and the witnesses were great everybody did a great job of just talking to us and not over focusing on the film production aspect you know like once you'd once you'd sink into it you could see people kind of start to ease up a little bit and really start being themselves. But the first minute or two, people are, I think, wary of being on camera. So that was a, that was an interesting dynamic. Yeah. All right. That's pretty much all I have for you. Unless there's any, any other burning, you know, anything you want to talk about, I guess. No, that's, that's pretty much it, man. I did one thing I would tease that's, that I think is super interesting. We, we did meet one of the original witnesses of the Plum Creek monster sightings back in the uh, 70s and up until now that gentleman's never told his story on camera so that'll be in the documentary that's something to get excited about that sounds cool what is the plum creek monster it is it's kind of ran the gamut on descriptions from being possibly a very large like hyena or ape to to maybe a bipedal wolf thing it may have traveled as far as south austin which is about 70 miles away from the plum creek area which is in lockhart there were allegedly some cattle mutilations and we were able to get the true detailed story behind that whole thing so i don't want to say anything other than that because that that i think is going to be new information for a lot of people but we didn't solve the mystery of the Plum Creek monster, but we did obtain a lot more information than was previously, you know, known. So that's I'm excited cool. about that. I yeah. hadn't heard of the uh, Plum Creek monster, so that's interesting. It's it's not a super well-known one, but around here, people know about it. And Lockhart, obviously, people know about it. And, and, you know, we were able to shine a light on some of the more obscure facts. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. All right. So, Aaron, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. Once again, can you plug your Instagram, your website, any plans you have besides the book, and then the title of your book again, all that good stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'll just rabble off all my nonsense, if that's okay. I, I'm the executive editor at Paranormality Magazine, so I regularly have articles going up on their website. You should, you should be on ParanormalityMag.com, regardless of whether or not I'm writing anything, because our entire writing team is amazing. Jack Kirby steers that ship, and he is a scholar and a gentleman. Our entire team's amazing. They're all great. 
But so paranormalitymag.com. My website is heystrangeness.com. Right now, it's really just a glorified link tree with links to different stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like our social feeds and our podcast and the Small Town Monsters publishing website that has the information about the book and a few other things like that. In the future, it'll have actual content. We'll get a blog going, but, you know, I'm having a baby in like two weeks. So we're going to hold off on that for right now. And then the book, The Texas Dogman Triangle, will be out in the spring. The film, Dogman Triangle Werewolves in the Lone Star State will also be out in the spring. We're just not sure the exact dates yet. And definitely check out the Paranormal Podcast Awards on October 30th. I don't know when this is airing, but it'll also be replayable. Uh, from, <laughs> from so tomorrow, yeah. tomorrow. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that'll that'll premiere on YouTube on October 30th. And definitely check it out. We got over 2,700 individual nominations for the awards this year. Wow. Huge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then Instagram, Hey Strangeness. That's where I'm so usually at. Is so. that like... Like an ostrich type thing, or you guys do? It is what? Is that like an ostrich type thing? Like, how do you? Is it like you're going to be live streaming and they'll give awards out? Like, how does that work? So we did that last year. We live streamed it and actually did everything in real time. And we had Shannon and Seth and and Sam and and so many awesome people presenting. And then YouTube screwed up or something happened and the entire production was lost. So the only people that actually saw the entire Paranormal Podcast Awards last year were the people who were presenting it because we were all on a Zoom call together. <laughs> we didn't know that it had stopped streaming. This year, everything is being pre-recorded at the very last minute and then stitched together and then it'll premiere on YouTube as one video. So it'll it'll premiere live the information will be out there live but we're not actually live streaming it because we don't want that to happen again but like there's presenters and like the the recipients of awards give speeches and stuff yes wow yeah yeah so cool. the the winners know who they are they're right. the only ones that know yes congratulations to all of you it was, it was a hot contest but the winners know who they are so they'll be sending in you know thank you or not thank yous but speeches thanking their fans and stuff i'm sure whatever they want to say and then Every member of the writing team is presenting, and then we have a guest presenter as well. So, okay. It'll be like, a fun time. I'd like to request create a new category best variety podcast that has 1.5 paranormal episodes per year. Could be, could be, uh, could be a hit, I think, with the audience. And I like it. Probably, uh, I would guess maybe at least five shows would fit that criteria. Yeah. Well, you know, the final bracket for each category is five shows. So that would, mm. that would actually work. And the whole point it. of this is to unite and celebrate the community and, and expose people to shows that they may not be exposed to otherwise. So that might be a very valuable addition to the category roster. I'll yeah. bring that up for next year. Dollars have argued. Well, <laughs> thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Thomas. Get out of your hair. And uh, peace. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>